Reflections on the Gospel of John Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 9 But John is the most, uh, the most metaphysical, the most theological evangelist but in a number of places he's also the most concrete he doesn't, he doesn't flinch when it comes to this. So right after he says, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, a sweeping theological statement. He has Jesus putting spittle and, and mud on this man's eyes. So it's this amazing combination in John of, this, of, of, the, of the tangible and, and primitive in the sense of a of, of, of very early memory of Jesus' healing. So, but as I say, John is talking here in this story about another kind of blindness. In a sense, his story doesn't even begin until this man's eyes are opened. And then the drama begins. The man's neighbors, then you see, this is what John is trying to give expression to is an experience. The experience of having one's eyes opened by contact with Christ a contact which by the time this gospel is being written is mediated by the church. That's what the church exists to do, is to make the contact with Christ possible after the historical Jesus has long, is long gone. So he's exploring that. There is an experience which is now I see. And this is the way to get to the metaphysical thing that John is talking about. We say, we often say, oh, now I see. That's the kind of sight. It's sight in the sense of insight or understanding. Oh, and it's, but not understanding in any kind of intellectual way. It's an experience of meaning. Oh, okay, now I see understand, experience, feel, etc. It's that sense of meaning. Well, okay, now the, drama, the real drama begins. The curing this, of the blindness was the easy part. The hard part is the social dynamic that, that tries to close back down on this person who has broken out of it. His neighbors and the people who had earlier seen him begging, now remember this man was a beggar and considered an outcast because of his physical affliction, which meant moral, some kind of moral uh, stain. His neighbors and people who had seen him begging said, is this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said yes, this is the same one. Others said no, he only looks like the man. So you get this disagreement in the, in the community about what's really going on. Is this really the same? So they have their little drama going on, no doubt thinking that they're getting to the heart of this matter. Is this the man? Maybe it's him. Maybe it's not him. Missing the point of what has happened to him. The man, meanwhile, says the following. I am the man. It, the implication is I am the man. The words are ego and me, exactly the words in Greek that translate the words of Yahweh from the burning bush that Jesus uses in this gospel a number of times with their full theological implication. Ego and me means I am who am. You could say that this gospel asserts in the way in which it puts these words in Jesus' mouth that Jesus is the only fully alive human being 
to have ever lived. The only one who could say, I am, with all of its significance. And this man says the same words, ego and me, but here we have to, we have, we, we, the implication is that he's simply saying, ego and me would also be, be what one would say if one wanted to say, I'm he, it's me. It's a way of saying, it's me. Meaning, I, I, I am the guy who was born blind, and now I say, ego and me. But I think the fact that it's somewhere between Jesus' announcement of ego and me and this man's ordinary sense of, I'm the one, is a hint that he has begun, that the journey he is on is not a journey from blindness to sight, but a journey from non-being to being. That fundamentally, that's what's going on. The true self is the converted self. So they said to him, how did, did your eyes come to be open? And he answered very straightforwardly, no funny business, the purest, simplest version. He says, the man called Jesus made a paste, put it on my eyes, said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. I went, I washed, and I could see. And then they said, where is he? He said, I don't know. Just the facts. Just the facts. That's what happened, and now I see. And what, part of what John's toying with here is the power of that simple revelation and the, and the need to avoid moving away from that existential fact, that experience, into some kind of argumentation that would, that, that's purpose is to bolster it, but the effect of which is to weaken it. The most powerful thing one can say is, I was blind, I had contact with Jesus, and now I can see. I don't know how to explain it, but it happened. And it's the power of that revelation that for John is, should not be watered down by some highfalutin theology. That's all one needs to say. So they said, where is he? I don't know, he said. They brought the man who had been blind to the Pharisees, it had been the Sabbath. And this, of course, you know, is always the case. Um, when Jesus had made the pace and opened the, man, uh, the man's eyes. So when the Pharisees asked him how he'd come to see, he said, he put a paste on my eyes, I washed it, and I can see. Then some of the Pharisees says, this man cannot be from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. It was, this is not a healing it's not healing on the Sabbath. It's making a paste on the Sabbath. You couldn't, you couldn't, kneading like kneading bread was forbidden on the Sabbath and, and under the understanding of kneading, any kind of mixing was against the Sabbath. So the very fact that Jesus had, had spat on the ground and made a paste was a violation of the Sabbath rule. So clearly, even though he had restored this man's sight, he has violated the Sabbath. This is John sort of showing how, how, how the scrupulosity, where it can lead, the scrupulosity. Other of the Pharisees, however, said, how could a sinner produce signs like this? So there's disagreement among them. So they spoke to the blind man again. What have you to say about him yourself now that he has opened your eyes? And he says, he's a prophet. Now, in a, this corresponds really, that, uh, John may have relied on Mark. And there is the story in Mark of the, of the restoring of the uh, of eyesight to a man, who, which is done by sp using spittle. And in Mark, the man 
begins to see, and after Jesus applies the first, uh, he gives the first application, you know, can you see? Yes, I can see. He says, but it's a little vague. I see people that they look like trees, but they're walking around. And so Jesus gives him another application of this. And then he can see perfectly clearly. Both Mark and John are emphasizing that this business of coming to clarity is a, is a Christological journey. That's really what it's about. It's a journey of moving out of a place of blindness into a place of lucidity or clarity. And it's a, it's a process. It's not something that just automatically happens like that. One begins and makes a journey. There's stages in it. So at this stage, he says he's a prophet, which in, even in the synoptics, you know, is a, measures sort of where, where you are on this journey. What do you say about this man, Jesus? And at this point, he's a prophet. However, the Jews would not believe that the man had been born blind and gained his sight without first sending for his parents and asking them, is this man your son? Was he born blind? And if so, how is he able to see? And his parents say, he's our son. He was born blind, but we don't know how he's able to see. He's old enough to speak for himself. Ask him. This idea of old enough to speak for himself implies not only age, but maturation and stature and so on. So again, I think John is using it to talk about a point in the, in the Christian conversion process when one is able to stand on one's own feet and say speak the truth about one's own experience. Not philosophize or theologize about what, has, what it all means, but simply speak the truth of one's own experience. He's old enough to do that. He has the, the stature and maturity to do that. They, it says the parents did not want to say because they were afraid they would be kicked out of the synagogue. Now we come back to what's going on in the, at the time this gospel is being written. They did not want to jeopardize their synagogue membership. So the, they sent for the man again and put him under oath. They say to the man, for our part, we know that this man is a sinner. So they give him the official position before they even ask him any question. We are the people who know. We are the arbiters of us religious and cultural life. This man is a sinner. You got it? Okay, now we want your testimony under oath as to how you see the thing. And he says, I don't know if he's a sinner. <laughs> I only know that I was blind and now I can see. They were thinking, oh, would, I mean, if he, we could get this guy engaged in this discussion about who is and who is not a sinner, he's in our court because we know all about the difference between sinners and non-sinners and how you get to be one or the other and so on and so forth. That's our business. That's the pharisaical operation. If we can just bait this guy to get into that discussion, he's on our turf. He's a sinner. Now, what do you think? I don't know he's a sinner. I only know this one thing. I don't know a lot of things. I only know one thing. I was blind. I met him, and now I can see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And now he's beginning to get a little, he's standing on his own two feet, just as his parents said he was old enough to do. He says, I've told you once and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And they're outraged. Uh, they hurl abuse at him. 
You can be his disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And now the man, by the way, they're using the professorial we here, the authoritative we, and now the man adopts that for himself. He begins to speak with this incredible authority using a kind of professorial we. He says, now here is an astonishing thing. He has opened my eyes and you don't know where he comes from. We know, he says, this is the formerly, formerly blind man saying, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but God does listen to men who are devout and who do his will. Ever since the world began, it is unheard of for someone to open the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could not do such a thing. And they say, are you teaching us? It's precisely what's going on. He, this man knows nothing about all the things that the Pharisees and the scribes and the theologians know about. He knows none of that. All he knows is his experience. I was blind. Jesus touched me. I now see. And on the basis of that experience, he is fully capable of overthrowing all of their arguments. And they say to him, Are you trying to teach us? And you a sinner through and through since you were born? And they cast him out. Cast him out. This is the stage of this process. Many people were being cast out of the synagogue at this time. And they were being cast out as people who simply did not understand the, ortho the, the, the depth of the orthodox position and the significance of the rules that they were violating and so on and so forth. All they had was this experience. And John is trying to say, that's all you need to have. So he's cast out. Now remember, right after he had been as eyesight had been restored, he said he didn't know where Jesus was. As soon as he is cast out, however, it says Jesus heard that he had been cast out. And when he found him, he said to him. In other words, it's only when he's cast out that he, that he meets Jesus again and his experience deepens. This is, what, this is the point John is making. If you stay within the synagogue... You can only go so far in your Christological understanding of what Jesus' life means. It's only when you uh, are expelled from there or move out of there that you can begin to deepen that. So when he's cast out, Jesus finds him and says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Sir, the man replied, Tell me who he is so I may believe in him. Very simple. He's still a kind of a naive person. He's just had this one experience. And Jesus says, You have seen him already. It is he who is speaking to you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. Now, it's interesting here that the man, that Jesus says, you have seen him, meaning this is, the implication is, this is what sight really is, to see the Son of Man. Uh, not necessarily with the physical organs, but in a deeper sense. And then Jesus says, it is he who is speaking to you. That's the kind of, that's the way of speaking that one would use if one were talking to someone who was blind. It is he who is speaking to you. Sounds like somebody talking to a blind man. Now, I, I, I should say, I think I've said this before, but I want to say it. I have no problem with physical miracles or supernatural miracles, cures that are like that. I... I the more of them we have, the better. And I have no 
uh, problem believing that Jesus brought such things about. Two things to be said about this story, however. One is that for John, it, clearly it's a question of seeing in a deeper sense, not in a physical sense. And secondly, if one's, as, as with other miracles of this sort, if one's eyes sight is physically restored and no other deeper insight is, uh, and was not accompanied by deeper insight, then what really has been accomplished? So the question would, the fundamental question is whether there's another kind of sight where one can see who Jesus is being uh, revived or restored or achieved. And that's what I think the story is about. In this story, seeing is believing. And believing is seeing. And Jesus says, do you believe? And the man says, yes, I believe. And then Jesus says, I've come for judgment. I've come into this world so that those without sight may see and those with sight turn blind. Now, clearly, he's not talking about physical sight anymore. The whole story is being reworked at a deeper level. And he says this to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees say, uh, who were present when he said that, say to him, we are not blind, surely. And Jesus says, if you were, Jesus says, blind, if you were, you would not be guilty. But since you say we see, your guilt remains. As I said, blindness is a, is an essential ingredient in the smooth functioning or the uh, efficacious functioning of sacrificial religion. We must always be able to misrecognize the arbitrariness of our selection of a scapegoat, scoundrel, victim, sinner. In this case, the scapegoat, scoundrel, victim, sinner was the blind man. Selected completely arbitrarily, but no one saw that. Everybody, including Jesus' disciples, thought, well, look, obviously he's a sinner. Somebody's a sinner. His parents are a sinner. He's a sinner. Nobody recognized the, the arbitrariness of this selection. So there is a necessary misrecognition built into all sacrificial thinking. We must never recognize the arbitrariness of our selection of the sinner, scapegoat, uh, culpable one, uh, etc. After the revelation of the, of the cross and the, biblical, the New Testament revelation, we can only... We must conspire more consciously in order to fall under this spell and know for sure who the, who the real evil ones are. We cannot look back on primitives who sacrifice victims and scorn them because they're terrible people, morally judge them. One can only be morally judged by... by uh, the moral judgment only falls on those who know better. That is to say, who are having somehow to induce their own participation. Jesus says that if you were blind, you would not be guilty, but since you say we see, your guilt remained. The character in Crime and Punishment, the, the murderer, Raskolnikov, is one such creature. He's having to fall under the 
sacrificial spell partly by self-inducing uh, this spell. He induces it not the way the Pharisees do by, uh, by invoking the, the, the law of Moses and so on, but he induces it by invoking the great, the great uh, political fashions of the late 19th century, uh, which were to find their most, their most uh, lucid expression in the writings of Friedrich Nietzsche. But Raskolnikov is, is a, comes to us before Nietzsche, but he's, he's, a, he's Nietzschean already. He has all these ideas already. So there's an old woman, an old uh, crone of a woman, who has a fair amount of money, or it seems so, and she's worthless. She clings to her money. She's irritable, etc., etc. So Raskolnikov convinces himself that she must die. And here's what he says. He says, kill her, take her money on condition that you dedicate yourself with its help to the service of humanity and the common good. Don't you think that thousands of good deeds will wipe out one little insignificant transgression? For one life taken... Thousands saved from corruption and decay. One death and a hundred lives in exchange. Why, it's simple arithmetic. What is the life of that stupid, spiteful, consumptive old woman weighed against the common good? You recognize immediately this is Caiaphas's formula, cooked up in the brain of some of some inhabitant of the late 19th century. It's better that one should die than the whole nation should be destroyed or suffer or whatever. But the point is that he is, he is self-inducing this participation. Well, I didn't want, I, what I want to do is go to a passage that happens about halfway through Crime and Punishment, which begins the very, very slow process of Raskolnikov's uh, spiritual awakening. It's a very slow process. But about halfway through that book, Raskolnikov and Sonia are uh, meeting. Raskolnikov is a murderer and a, and a towering man of towering pride, a kind of Nietzschean figure. And Sonia is a, is a prostitute. And Raskolnikov says to her, you pray to God, Sonia, don't you? She looked up at him for a moment with a flash in her eyes, and she pressed his hand firmly with her own. What would I be without God, she whispered swiftly and energetically. She's a holy fool, he told himself, a holy fool. There was a book lying on the bureau. Pacing up and down, he had noticed it every time he went by. He picked it up and looked at it. It was the New Testament in Russian translation. The book was old and worn and bound in leather. Where did you get this? He cried at her across the room. She stood where she was, three steps from the table. Somebody brought it to me, she said with seeming reluctance and without looking at him. Who brought it to you? Lisaveta. I asked her to. 
Lisa Vetta's the other woman he's killed. He killed two women. Lisa Vetta's the sister of the woman he had planned to kill, and he had to kill her too. So the woman, second woman he killed brought this. And he's th he then thinks, Lisa Vetta, strange. Everything about Sonia seemed stranger and more wondrous to him at every moment. He carried the book to the candle and started leafing through it. Suddenly he asked, where's the passage about Lazarus? The part about the resurrection of Lazarus, where is it? Find it for me, Sonia. She gave him a sidelong glance. It's not where you're looking. It's in the fourth gospel. You're a friend of Lizaveta's, he said. Here was something new, he thought. Mysterious meetings with Lizaveta. Both of them holy fools. Watch out, he thought to himself, or you'll turn into a holy fool yourself. It's catching. Suddenly, with a force and some irritation, he cried out, Read! Got that story of Lazarus? Read! The Lazarus story in John appears at the place where the, the cleansing of the temple appears in, in the synoptics. In John, the cleansing of the temple appears at the very beginning of the gospel. In the synoptics, the cleansing of the temple is the provocative act that brings about the, the opposition to Jesus that leads to his death. In the gospel of John, it's the raising of Lazarus that precipitates the opposition that leads to his death. Immediately after the Lazarus story, uh, the Sanhedrin gather, and Caiaphas says, he pronounces those succinct words, it's better that one should die than the whole nation should be destroyed, in response to the raising of Lazarus. Raskolnikov talked himself into murder by cooking up a late 19th century political version of the, of the Caiaphas formula. He came to his senses by having Sonia read to him the raising of Lazarus story. So it's, it's, uh, it's the cure. The Lazarus story and the Caiaphas principle represent a kind of dialectic in Dostoevsky's uh, Crime and Punishment. As for John's use of the Lazarus story, he may have had access to Luke or he may have had access to the materials that Luke relied upon. There's only one other Lazarus in the New Testament and that's in Luke. And it's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is the, is the uh, poor beggar at the gate of the rich man. And the rich man ignores him, mistreats him, and then Lazarus dies and he dies. And Lazarus goes to his just rewards and the rich man goes to his perdition. And he is suffering and he pleads that Lazarus uh, might bring him a, a drink, something, some respite from the suffering. And he is told that that cannot be allowed. And the rich man is talking to Abraham. And he says to Abraham, Father, I beg you then to send Lazarus to my father's house since I have five brothers to give them warning so that they do not come to this place of torment too. So he says, They have Moses and the prophets, said Abraham. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, the rich man said. But if someone comes to them from the dead, they will repent. Then Abraham said to him, 
If they will not listen either to Moses or to the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. Well, that may be, or some version of that story may have been the germ of this story in John. Even if someone rise at the end of this story, Lazarus rises from the dead. And then it says, many of those who saw this came to believe in Jesus, but others did not. <laughs> well, obviously John is using this story to make a, a, a point other than Jesus' ability to resuscitate a corpse. If a literal resurrection, for all of its power and significance, blinds us to something more subtle but, in fact, more revelatory and more available to us, then it's perfectly okay to, to move around that literal interpretation, not in order to debunk it, but to, in order to get some, to something that's more powerful. I would say notice the emphasis on Martha and Mary. There was a man named Lazarus who lived in the village of Bethany with two of his sisters, Mary and Martha, and he was ill. It was the same Mary, the sister of the sick man Lazarus, who had anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. This takes place in the next in chapter 12. The sister sent this message to Jesus. Lord, the man you love is ill. On receiving the message, Jesus said, The sickness will not end in death, but in God's glory, and through it the Son of God will be glorified. Jesus, it says, loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. And so, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was for two more days before saying to the disciples, Let's go to Judea. And so, that's Raymond Brown's translation. Most, gospels, most uh, translations say, he loved them, and yet he stayed. But Raymond Brown says, no, it means, and so he stayed. Some kind of holding back. Then he says, let's go to Judea. The disciples say, Rabbi, it was not long since we were there, and they wanted to stone you. If you go there again, they will try to kill you. And Jesus, so clearly going to, to, to uh, raise Lazarus means dying. He says there are 12 hours in the day. A man can walk in the daytime without stumbling because he has the light of the world to see by. But if he walks at night, he stumbles because there is no light to guide him. Who is the light of the world? Jesus just announced in, in chapter 9, I am the light of the world. A man can walk in the daytime without stumbling because he has the light of the world to see by. If he walks at night, he stumbles because there is no light in him. Now, what is it? I say, I, I, I say, this story happens right before the passion story. I think this is a dry run for the passion story. I think Jesus is saying, uh, no, we will, the Johannine Jesus, I'm not saying the historical Jesus, the Johannine Jesus is saying, no, we will go to that tomb and we will meet death there and I will show you how to meet it. So when you have to meet it at the cross and at my death, you will know how to meet it. I will show you how to meet death in the light of the resurrection, which you haven't even experienced yet. So that when you have to meet my death, you can, you can meet it in the light of the resurrection. I, I think structurally that's how this passage works and this story works in this gospel. So they go to Bethany and Lazarus has been dead four days. It says, Many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them. 
over their brother. Martha came to Jesus. Martha heard that Jesus was coming. She went to meet him. She said, it would not have happened, Lord, had you been here. And so there is Martha standing on the road. Behind her is Bethany and the tomb of her brother, and in front of her is Jesus. Edward Skillbeck says it's, it's, it was, apparently, he says, it was existentially impossible to despair in the presence of Jesus. So here she is with her dead brother back there and Jesus standing in front of her. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. The question is, can he break the spell that death has on her at that moment? She comes to him distraught. And he says, your brother shall rise again. And she says, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. In other words, she repeats a creedal formula. Oh, yes, I know. Yeah, right, I believe in resurrection. See? So she says, yeah, I believe in resurrection. But meanwhile, she's stuck in her brother's death. She's stuck in her brother's death. The problem is she believes in resurrection, but she, hasn't, she doesn't experience it. She's not living in the light of it. She only believes in it. So I'm using belief now, not in the way John uses the term, but in the conventional way. She affirms the creedal assertion, but it's not an experience. She's not living in the light of it. Your brother will rise again. Oh, yeah, I know he'll rise again on the last day. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. Whoever believes in me even if he, will live even if he dies, and no one who lives and believes in me will ever die. Do you believe this? He doesn't say there won't be any more death. He's, it's, it's more complicated and nuanced than that. There's dying and there's living, but it's, but it's not what it looks like. But the most important thing is, I am the resurrection. And this goes to Skillebeck's thing. It's existentially impossible to despair in the presence of Jesus. So here's Martha. Okay, Martha, over there is the tomb of your brother, and here's Jesus who is the resurrection. Which one has the greatest power? Which one is the truth of this situation? You see, it's, it's the experience of the resurrection. And he says, do you believe in this? Which is a way of saying, do you experience this? I'm the resurrection. Do you experience that? If you experience that, then we, we're on to something. But as long as it's just an idea or a piece of the creed, it won't matter. You're not living in the light of it. And she says, yes, Lord, I believe. Notice, by the way, he does not say, Jesus does not say, don't worry, the soul is immortal. That's, there's none of that. That's not a Christian idea. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. If you experience me, you will find that death does not have a grip on you the way it did before. Just the same way that the blindness no longer gripped that blind man. But notice the real focus is on Martha here. Jesus is not saying, you know, did Lazarus believe before he died? Or how's Lazarus' state of faith, you know? Is he experiencing me as the resurrection? Lazarus is hardly mentioned in the story. He's a complete straw man in this story. Everything depends on the relationship between Jesus and Mary and Martha. This is a story, I would change the name of this story. I would say it's not the story of the raising of Lazarus. It's a story of coaxing Martha and Mary into the light of the resurrection. 
So Martha runs off and gets her sister Mary. Now Mary has stayed home uh, with those who are consoling her. Now you know, because we're about to get into it, you know that it was customary to have a week-long mourning after someone's death, and particularly women participate in it, which involved ritual wailing, this endless ritual wailing, uh, and also other, other uh, rituals around the anointing the body and wrapping the body and, and, and so on and so forth. But it was a whole week of funereal uh, rituals. And Mary is engaged in these with the other Jews that have come to her home. Martha has had this experience on the road. And she goes back to tell Mary. And she tells her secretly, the teacher, the rabbi, has come and he wants to see you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and started toward him. The Jews who were in the house with Mary consoling her saw her get up quickly and go out, and they followed her, thinking that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So it's set up so that there are two places. It's the most obvious place. She jumped up and went out, and the common sense was she's going to, to the tomb to weep. By the way, we're... we're We've been done a great disservice by having that word translated weep because the Greek word is, a, is the word for ritual mourning. It means to wail. And it doesn't mean to, to weep because one is sad. It means to wail because that's a ritual requirement. The people you, you engaged in this wailing even if you didn't like the person who died. It didn't. It was a. It was a ritual that one went through. No doubt, there is a, a sense of personal loss here, but we misinterpret it when we read this as weeping at the tomb. This is a cult event. Mary, they thought she was going to the tomb to continue the wailing ritual. So here's what happens. When Mary came to the place where Jesus, where she saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, "Lord, if you had been here, my brother would never have died." Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had accompanied her also weeping. Let me re rephrase that. Jesus saw her wailing, and the Jews that accompanied her wailing. This is collective wailing. And he shuddered with indignation. He grew angry. And the, the Greek word means anger. As a matter of fact, uh, Vine's etymology, which is my source on this, says it's an intensive form of the verb, quote, prim that which, quote, primarily signifies to snort with anger. You see? And we're told in most translations, you know, that he was troubled. He was angry. Why is he angry? Why is the Johannine Jesus angry? It's because he has come to Bethany to have the preliminary showdown with death, and death is winning. Death is winning. They're wailing. They're going through the ritual wailing. And he grows angry at the power of death. And the, and the, the sort of homiletic interpretations, I think, are right. He's angry at the power of death, true. But he's angry at the power, the grip that death has on these people, even though he's standing right there. I am the resurrection. And she's wailing right there. And the whole crowd are wailing. And he realizes the, the grip of In the 
in the, the synoptics, Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. At the, at, at the end of this gospel, uh, Mary comes to the tomb and Jesus says to her, why are you wailing? Don't you see? Don't do that. Not because it's unnecessary, but because it's dangerous. So, I think this is true. And what I want to try to show is that what goes on, that wailing, the effect of that wailing is to is to exploit a natural death for its cathartic potential. That is to say, to, to extract from a natural death the kind of catharsis that would ordinarily have come from a sacrificial death. And I want to show that that is a very common feature of human anthropology. And I think the way to understand Jesus' his indignation is to see that. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of the story. Jesus then, in anger, says, Where have you laid him? Lord, come and see, they told him. Remember, come and see is the powerful thing at the beginning of this gospel. The first two disciples say to Jesus, Where do you abide? And he says, Come and see. And now these people who are headed for the tomb, headed for the place where they're going to become reabsorbed in a cultic mentality, they say to him, come and see. See, death is winning. And death, the whole world that with death at its center is inviting Jesus now to come on back in. Come and see. And so he's, he goes there and explodes it. So... At this point, it says, Jesus began to cry. And this is a different verb altogether. This is a verb for simply for shedding tears quietly. And he's crying, and it says here, this caused them to remark, see how much he loved him. Well, true, he loved Lazarus, no doubt about it. But I think if his tears have anything to do with what the story is telling, it doesn't say suddenly he remembered Lazarus. Suddenly he saw these people that he loved being swallowed up by the cult of death. And he, and he wept. But then, in a, a, two verses later, his anger flares up again. His indignation flares up again. And he goes to the grave, which is a cave with a stone across it. And this is where the showdown occurs. You know, Skillbeck says it's impossible to be experienced despair in the presence of Jesus. He's, in his way, he says, let's go to the tomb. Let's go to that place and see, see if you can live in the light of the resurrection at that spot. It's one thing to live in the light of the resurrection sitting on a hillside when the sun's coming up. But let's go to that place and see if you can live in the light of the resurrection. So... They go to the cave. There's a stone over the cave. Jesus says, take the stone away. Martha says, he's been dead four days. There'll be a stench. Jesus said, never mind. Take the stone away. It, you, what you're going to experience now is not going to be stench, but the glory of God and the resurrection. So take the stone away. They took the stone away, and he prays, Father, I thank you because you heard me. Of course, I knew you always hear me, 
But I say it because of the crowd standing around that they may believe that you sent me. He prays, conscious of trying to have an influence on these people. This, is, this, this people is what uh, Elias Kennedy in his, in his anthropological study called Crowds and Power calls the lamenting pack. And I have some examples of the lamenting pack. And he says, I, the reason I am praying this is so that they will hear me and, and come break, be, uh, break out of, uh, and be awakened from the spell that they're under. Having said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, bound hand and foot, with linen straps. Uh, excuse me. The dead man came out, bound hand and foot, with linen strips, and his face wrapped in a cloth. No, it's it's amazing how little is said about Lazarus. He comes out and he's bound up and all this. That's all it's said. Untie him, Jesus told them. And let him go. Now the best thing, the best advice about that passage is to feel it at the deepest level you can feel. Where is it most powerful? Is that a story about a man, a corpse being resuscitated that they, they must go up and take the linen wrappings off of? It's perfectly okay with me if it is. But if it's, it could also be a story about all of us. He is talking to them. He is saying these words to them. That is to say, to those people caught up in the ritual wailing. The ritual wailing that gave rise to his indignation. He is talking to them. And he says to them, untie him and let him go. I don't want to take, I I don't want to get to the, empty tomb story until we get to the empty tomb story but this is what the empty tomb story is about he 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 disappears at the last moment they show up they're they're spring loaded to 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 do the whole deal and he's gone and it's the only way that's right that's right it's it's because if you do that you'll just regenerate another religion you know and and it's and i think he sees that he sees my god in the face of death, you know what these people... He sees his own death. He says, you know what these people are going to do? They're going to do at my death what they're doing at the death of Lazarus. And the result of all this is just going to be another religion. So, I want to explore the wailing ritual. Robert Kaplan has written a book called Balkan Ghosts. And I want to quote from it, but first I want to quote from a review of it that appeared in the Washington Post book world at the end of March, a review by Tina Rosenberg, and it begins with the following two paragraphs. On June 28, 1987, an ambitious Serbian communist leader came to a field in Kosovo called Kosovo Polji, the field of blackbirds, on the anniversary of the defeat there of a Serbian commander. They'll never do this to you again, he pleaded to the crowd. Never again will anyone defeat you. That was the moment, writes Robert Kaplan, 
when the Serbian revolt against the Yugoslav Federation began. The speaker was Slobodan Milosevic. The defeat commemorated on that field took place in 1389. <clears throat> Second paragraph. A year later, the coffin of the defeated Serb commander began a year-long pilgrimage through every village in Serbia, followed by multitudes of sobbing mourners dressed in black in each town. For many in Serbia, the year 1989 marked not the fall of communism, but the 600th anniversary of the defeat of Kenes Lazar at Kosovo Polji. Multitudes of sobbing mourners dressed in black, sobbing and mourning a death that had occurred 600 years earlier. Now, the point of this is obviously that these people are not sobbing and mourning because of some personal loss. And neither are the people in this story of Lazarus. There may be personal loss involved, no doubt. There may be personal sadness. Jesus himself weeps a tear, but the ritual wailing has nothing to do with that. It is another phenomenon. What is it? It is the exploitation of a, of a, of a death for sacrificial purposes. Ritual mourning takes a, a natural death and derives from it as much sacrificial catharsis as is possible so that it's the use of a natural or accidental death for sacrificial purposes to have sacrificial effects. There were, the ritual mourners were often hired because they had, a, they had a talent and a gift for increasing the possibility of catharsis. Kaplan writes about what happened after the uh, Ottoman Turkish Empire uh, closed in on the Serbian uh, people. Kaplan says, they filled their hearts with vengeful sadness. I want you to savor that, that uh, oxymoron. They filled their hearts with vengeful sadness. On June 28, 1988, the year-long countdown to the sixth centenary of Lazar's martyrdom at Kosovo Polji began when his coffin began a tour of every town and village in Serbia. The coffin drew huge, black-clad crowds of wailing mourners at every stop. It is not just coincidental that this is a parody of resurrection. This is the kind of resurrection that has played a central role in human self-delusion since the dawn of human culture. It is a typical example of what Nietzsche called the eternal return. And that's why Jesus, the Johannine Jesus, was angry in its presence. He saw those whom he had touched falling back under the spell of sacrificial life in a spell that was being re-invoked in the aftermath of a perfectly natural death. One begins to see the 20th century in very strange, uh, as a very interesting tangled skein of all these things. 
1914, the Serb, as you know, the Archduke Ferdinand was killed by um, a Serbian nationalist, a Bosnian Serb. He was killed on the anniversary of the defeat at Kosovo Polji. And his assassin was reputed to have made a point of reading passages from the writings of Nietzsche in Belgrade cafes. The point I want to make in talking about all this is that regardless of how heartfelt it is, anthropologically ritual mourning has the effect of giving a natural, accidental, or incidental death sacrificial efficacy. The real power of death, writes Girard, is sacrifice. Mourning itself is derived from sacrifice. Like everything cultural, it is the child of sacrifice. Ritual mourning is the, is the attempt to turn a natural death into something that will have sacrificial efficacy for the community. Ritual mourning. What does ritual mourning do? Why was Jesus angry? This is what I'm trying to... I kept to remind you, this is what I'm trying to track on. What does it do? Why was he angry? How do we live in the light of the resurrection? And what does it mean? To live in the light, of, the light of the resurrection means not that we feel okay about death. It means that we change the world. So, I want to read two stories that have to do with a transition between sacrificial... Uh, a sacrificial death and ritual mourning. A kind of two stories that have to do with something that's not quite one and not quite the other. These are always the most interesting stories. And the first is from the book of Numbers. Uh, at, this, at this moment, the book of Numbers, cha chapter 22, uh, Israel has been, has been in crisis f for some time. They can't seem to get out of crisis. There's a social breakdown. They have a big crisis. They have some kind of seeming resolution to it, but then the next crisis develops immediately. They can't hold themselves together as a people. There are very few passages in these, in the passages preceding this story where we're, we're assured with any confidence that the people of Israel are together, all one, unified. It's just not happening. And suddenly we get the following. They journeyed uh, from Kadesh and the people of Israel, the whole congregation came to Mount Hor. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor, on the border of the land of Edom, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given the people of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. The Meribah story is this shadowy little story that, uh, of failure on the part of Moses and Aaron. That it's hard to interpret, really. But in any case, that's used as the reason for this. Aaron is going to be, is going to be uh, gathered to his people says Yahweh, take Aaron and Eleazar his son and bring them up uh, to Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son and Aaron shall be gathered to his people and shall die there. On cue? You see? Well, it doesn't say. Moses did as Lord, the Lord commanded and they went up the ma Mount Hor in the sight of all the people. So the journey up, now Mount Hor might be a little, a little hillock, you know, or, but the point is, the journey was, was attended by everyone, was watched, and so it's a rich, has a ritual quality to it. And Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them upon Eleazar his son, 
and Aaron died there on top of the mountain. Well, that was that, that? Then you say, what was that? Was that a natural death? Was it a sacrificial death? Was it a little, little of one and a little of the other? One doesn't know. Then it says, when all the people saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel wailed for Aaron for 30 days. A death, which is questionably natural, questionably sacrificial. We don't, we don't need to get into that right now. The point is that that death was followed by a 30-day ritual mourning which brought the people together. Maybe it was sacrificial, maybe it wasn't, but the effect was sacrificial. Okay. Canetti quotes some anthropologists, Spencer and Gillen, who did a study uh, at the turn of the century in central Australia. And they described the death of an old king in a, a central Australian tribe. And again, you get this transition between sacrificial and natural death and the attempt to exploit a natural death for sacrificial effects. Here's how it goes. And this he's just quoting. I'm just quoting Kennedy, who was quoting Spencer and Gillen, who watched this thing happening. Even before the old king had breathed his last, the lamentations and self-inflicted wounds began. By the way, why are these self-inflicted wounds? They are the ritual reenactment of something. Clearly, they're the ritual reenactment of a, of, a, of a social crisis, which ended in sacrifice. But that's not what we're here. Right now, I just want to see the ritual mourning function of this. Even before the old king had breathed his last, the lamentations and self-inflicted wounds began. When it was known that the end was near, all the native men ran at full speed to the spot where he lay. Now, this is marvelous because it's, it's the need. You see, this is like, you see, Aaron died. He was stripped of his garment and he died on cue. Right? Well, here's somebody who's dying a natural death. But everybody's looking over to see, you know, when is the moment? This is like when we say, well, when shall we call the family? This is the moment. When is the moment when we can assume that he has about 30 minutes left? Because we can coincide our frenzy with his death and get sacrificial benefits out of a natural death. So they dash to this poor man's uh, deathbed. Some of the women who had gathered from all directions were lying prostrate on the body of the dying man while others were standing or kneeling around, digging the sharp ends of yam sticks into the crowns of their heads from which blood streamed down their faces while all the time they kept up a loud, continuous wail. Many of the men rushing up to the scene flung themselves on the sufferer, the women rising and making way for them till nothing was to be seen but a struggling mass of bodies all mixed up together. Now that is a ritual enactment of what? I say it's a ritual enactment of a murder. But there's no murder here. That's a natural death. That's the thing about this story. Gradually, the struggling mass of dusky bodies untwined itself, disclosing the unfortunate sick man who was the object or rather victim of this well-meant demonstration of affection and sorrow. 
this is 19th century anthropologists trying to survive their romantic, uh, trying to preserve their romanticism, you know. Uh, so, anyway, it was a well-meant demonstration. It was, no doubt, but uh, the old, if the old king had been ill before, he was much worse when his friends left him. <laughs> you see, if, if in fact they run and they don't exactly coincide, their frenzy doesn't exactly coincide with his death, there's some, uh, some things about their frenzy which will help that coincidence come about. You, you, get, you get 30 people piling on top of you when you don't have much left in you. It has a tendency to have this, to precipitate death. So I said, if he had been ill before, still, okay, he did, uh, indeed it was plain he did not have long to live. Still, the weeping and wailing went on. The sun set, darkness fell in the camp. Later in the evening, the man died. Then the wailing rose louder than ever. And men and women, apparently frantic with grief, see, it's true in its way, but that's missing the point, apparently frantic with grief, rushed about cutting themselves with knives and sharp-pointed sticks, while the women battered each other's heads with clubs, no one attempting to ward off either cuts or blows. Canetti's comment about after he quotes this is, obviously what matters is the excitement itself the ferocity of the lament. Now there's that oxymoron again. See, Kaplan has vengeful sadness and Kennedy speaks of the ferocity of the lament. The alternative to this is not stoicism. Stoicism is just another form of it. So it's not as though, oh, this is emotionality and we have to not be emotional. In Melville's Moby Dick, Ishmael goes into the whaleman's chapel and he finds the following. Entering, I found a small scattered congregation of sailors and sailors' wives and widows. A muffled silence reigned. Each silent worshiper seemed purposely sitting apart from the other as if each silent grief were insular and incommunicable. These silent islands of men and women sat steadfastly eyeing several marble tablets with black borders. These are the cenotaphs that commemorate the dead that have been lost at sea, that have have no grave, you see. But it's just, it's it's like being at the grave of Lazarus and wailing, only it's not wailing, it's Puritan, it's it's the, you know, Puritanical version of wailing. It's sitting stoically and in this gaunt sort of commemoration of the dead. And then the narrator in Moby Dick says, O ye whose dead lie buried beneath the green grass, who stand among flowers, uh, who can stand among flowers and say, Here, here lies my beloved, ye know not the desolation that broods in bosoms like these. What bitter blanks in those black-bordered marbles which cover no ashes. What despair in those immovable inscriptions. Death has conquered them. They're living in the, under the spell of a death they can't, they can't exorcise. What voids and unbidden infidelities in the lines that seem to gnaw upon all faith and refuse resurrections to the beings who have placelessly perished without a grave. So here are these mourners refusing resurrection, staring stoically at these commemorations, 
of the dead. So the point I want to make is it can be the Stoic version just as well. It's just as much in the grip of it. It's just as much of a capitulation to the power of death. The narrator says, How is it that we still refuse to be comforted for those who we nevertheless maintain are dwelling in unspeakable bliss? <laughs> Clearly for him, what's going on here is they're refusing resurrection. Okay, well, I want to close with the, with the Thomas Merton poem. Uh, which has to do, I think, with how to live in the light of the resurrection. Living in the light of the resurrection is not something that simply has to do with one's own peace. It does, or with one's attitude towards one's own death or the death of others. It is something that is a radical form of coming alive. And it is not something that... that uh, treats death as insignificant. Death is, a, death is a great sadness. And if we didn't experience its sadness, it would not have its spiritual effect for us. I've often thought of death as being God's most brilliant invention. None of us would have ever thought of it. We, we would have thought of all kinds of things. We would have thought of ropes and pulleys and all kinds of gizmos to get the you know the creatures to to uh, come to their senses. We would never have thought of death, but the problem is the power of death, the seductive power of death. And this is, I think, what Jesus made Jesus angry. He saw it as the occasion for the reconfiguration of the cultic religion. So, how did the how to live in the light of uh, the resurrection. I want to read the Thomas Merton poem because I think it encapsulates it well. How to respond to death. And it goes like this. This is the poem entitled For My Brother Reported Missing in Action 1943. It's long been a favorite poem of mine because my father was killed in action uh, about a year and a half after this. And... Uh, so I've always liked this poem. But every time I read it, I discover new things about it. So it goes like this. There's a poem about living in the light of the resurrection. Sweet brother, if I do not sleep, my eyes are flowers for your tomb. And if I cannot eat my bread, my fast shall live like willows where you die. If in the heat I find no water for my thirst, my thirst shall turn to springs for you, poor traveler. Where, in what desolate and smoky country lies your poor body lost and dead? And in what landscape of disaster has your unhappy spirit lost its road? Come, in my labor, find a resting place. And in my sorrows lay your head. Or rather, take my life and blood and buy yourself a better bed. Or take my breath and take my death and buy yourself a better rest. 
when all the men of war are shot and flags have fallen into dust, your cross and mine shall tell men still Christ died on each for both of us. I mean, read those two lines again. It's the most incredible two lines. Your cross and mine shall tell men still Christ died on each for both of us. This is amazing. This is Paul saying, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. Or Jesus saying, I and the Father are one. When all the men of war are shot and flags have fallen into dust, your cross and mine shall tell men still Christ died on each for both of us. And in the wreckage of your April, Christ lies slain, and Christ weeps in the ruins of my spring. The money of whose tears shall fall into your weak and friendless hand and buy you back to your own land. The silence of whose tears shall fall like bells upon your alien tomb. Hear them and come. They call you home. So Jesus goes up to the tomb, has the stone rolled back, calls Lazarus out. Lazarus comes out and he says to those involved in the ritual wailing, untie him and let him go. Don't fall into that cultic thing. Live in the light of the resurrection. 